It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use cloud accounting software. You can send customized professional-looking invoices, track your expenses, see how much you're getting paid, and you can easily organize your receipts for tax time. FreshBooks makes it all super duper easy and it saves you so much time. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter oppo, OPPO, in the how did you hear about us section. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by The Big Story. This election will be, and has been, nasty, messy, and ridiculous. But we know that two things always matter. Geography and policy. At least, they're supposed to matter. In the weeks leading up to the vote, The Big Story podcast has been going in-depth with reporters from every province and territory to figure out what matters to their regions and how it will impact the results. And in the week before Canada goes to the polls, host Jordan Heath-Rollins will sit down with policy experts to break down where each party stands on the issues that matter most. If you want to know how and where this election will be won, all you have to do is listen to The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to thebigstorypodcast.ca. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by the new book Highway of Tears. For decades, Indigenous women and girls have gone missing or have been found murdered alongside an isolated stretch of highway in northwestern British Columbia. It's what's known as the Highway of Tears. In this book, the author spends a lot of time talking to the people most affected by this, those who were closest to the victims. This is not just a reporter parachuting in or, or trying to make a true crime book. The families of the victims were really involved in the process. The author provides in-depth, intimate stories about the lives of these women and girls and those closest to them. There's also a lot of new reporting on how the police investigated these cases and in-depth interviews with the investigating officers themselves. Highway of Tears by Jessica McDermott is now available wherever books are sold. Tonight, they will defend and deconstruct their ideas live. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau, conservative leader Andrew Scheer, MVP Jagmeet Singh, Elizabeth May of the Green Party, Black Quebecois leader Yves-François Blanchet, and Maxine Bernier of the People's Party. What did you think of the debate? The debate was... You can just say it's a hot mess. If you want to say it's a hot mess. I was literally about to say you cut me off. (laughs) From Canada Land, this is Oppo. Today on the show, oh my god, I woke up with a Maxine Bernier tattoo. (laughs) 
Last night was a super-duper official government stamp of approval English language consortium debate, and it was a real fucking disaster. Justin Trudeau, Andrew Scheer, Jagmeet Singh, Yves-Francois Blanchet, Elizabeth May, Maxine Bernier, 12 moderators, 80 voices from around the country, the lineup of the 1987 Quebec Nordiques. Everybody was there. Who won? Who lost? But who thought they won? Who won but thought they lost? Who is Yves-Francois Blanchet? And then we scoot on over to Edmonton, where I was last weekend to talk to all-around nerd Andrew Leach about the environment and energy policy. Who's right? Who's wrong? And who's going to bake the planet? I'm Justin Ling in Ottawa, and the only official English language debate with all the candidates, probably too many candidates, has just wrapped up. Candidates were talking over each other for most of the affair. There was constant interruptions. Questions were completely ignored. Any sort of topics went off the rails immediately, and it was hard to figure out sometimes who was even talking. Let me have the we? Nobody can, nobody can hear what you're saying anymore. Through all the carnage, it became pretty clear that no one was able to do any serious damage to Justin Trudeau. The role of a prime minister is to stand up for Canadians' jobs, to stand up for the... Even though he did receive a couple of body blows from the other leaders. can't even remember how many times he put blackface on, because the fact of the matter is he's always wearing a mask. Elizabeth May managed to stay on topic more than her previous forays onto the debate stage. And if you have wealth, you have obligation. You have okay, responsibility. If I, t- if Pay your taxes. Jagmeet Singh did surprisingly well, and his spinners after the debate were pretty confident that he had come away a winner. Wanted to fight hard to keep SNC-Lavalin out of the courts, but he's going to drag Indigenous kids to court. That is wrong. How could someone do that? Yves-Francois Blanchette, campaigning to exactly nobody, did quite well, though it's not really clear who he was actually talking to, considering not a whole lot of Anglos are going to vote Bloc Québécois. What you are doing, Mr. Scheer, is playing this old card. You're trading the idea that Quebec is corrupt. No, that Those 3,400 people have done nothing wrong. And finally, Andrew Scheer managed to stay alive, if only just... Lots of arguing and crosstalk, but not a whole lot of substance. I believe Short we should take that money and bring it back home so that Canadians greedy can and get selfish policies. It's not greedy okay. to put money in the pockets of Canadians, Ms. May. We're going to fundamentally In the scrums after the debate, Jagmeet Singh looked a little bit less comfortable than he was on the debate stage. He's still facing questions over what exactly his position is on Bill 21. Even though the bill would actually affect him if he ever tried to get a job in Quebec, he has still ruled out any sort of federal intervention unless the case makes it to the Supreme Court court. Any prime minister has to look at a court issue that gets before the Supreme Court. So of course. What I'm stating is that it's it's the... It's well, it's pretty clear the debate is not exactly going to deliver anyone a majority government. It might actually do a little bit to sway voting intentions. If the poll numbers are right, Elizabeth May has been bleeding ground to the NDP and Liberals over the last couple of days, and this debate doesn't seem to be doing a lot to reverse that. Jagmeet Singh might finally have a proper introduction to all those folks who still don't really know who he is, and he managed to get some pretty good one-liners in, especially at the expense of the Prime Minister and Andrew Scheer. You do not need to choose between Mr. Delay and Mr. Deny. There is another option. Andrew Scheer, for whatever reason, continued doubling down on all of the things he's done in this campaign that don't really seem to be working. He fought hard against a carbon tax yet again, iterating that somehow he's actually pro-environment, and saying that he would not bring in any sort of law on abortion, even though he is himself pro-life. It is okay in this country to have a difference of opinion, something yes, you do not recognize. Yes, but Canadians it is beneath, sure it is beneath Canadians, the Prime Minister to demonize people for their Canadians views. need the to law- know...
if Justin Trudeau was hoping to have a good night, this definitely wasn't it. It was middling at best. He stood up, he didn't fall down, but he really didn't manage to get much of a word in edgewise. He was constantly facing criticism from the other leaders. Every time he tried to deliver one of his platitudes, he got interrupted, and there was a lot of crosstalking going on. Because you you do have not want to act Canadians. on climate change, Mr. Mr. Sheer. You, you were doing nothing. You were reversing the only plan we ever had. You As many liberals will tell you, an incumbent never wins a debate, but it could definitely hurt him. Both Sheer, Singh, and May all got in some serious body blows on the environment and his record on reducing CO2 emissions, which is not great for somebody who's campaigning on a big climate platform. The whole structure of the debate was actually itself a mess. The themes weren't really themes. The topics weren't really topics. The questions weren't really questions. It meant that we jumped from indigenous issues to the environment, to energy, to taxation, to healthcare, one after another, and then back all over again. It made it really hard to follow the debate. So if you were expecting that this debate would actually significantly move poll numbers, I'd abandon that hope pretty quickly. My name is Cheryl Evelyn. I'm the managing editor of the Hill Times. So we were CPAC co-panelists tonight. What did you think of the debate? The debate was... You can a, just say it's a hot mess. If you want to say it's I a hot mess. I was literally about to say you cut me <laughs> off. I was about to say it was a, it was a chaotic, frenetic mess. Um, it was... I, honestly, I don't have a better word for it other than it was a mess. Obviously, every debate's a mess. I mean, everybody, every debate, people are talking over each other. Every debate, there's people trying to score points, cheap points, but um, this one was a bit of an extra mess just because of the format. It was it was super confusing. You had, you know, somebody coming in with a question and then somebody being allowed to ask another question on any topic and then people being allowed to debate each other and then people just, just going off the rails and then Maxime Bernier would jump in and just shout over everybody. I feel like this entire debate was designed on like one of those like cork boards with a whole bunch of like, you know, Pin, push pins into a whole bunch and it's string everywhere and just like slightly deranged. Okay, so I'm, I'm not even going to ask you the who won thing because I think, I think that's going to be tired even already. Um, but like, was there anything there that made you go, okay, thank God, we're finally getting to this. It feels like a, a nice moment that we finally get to talk about X. Uh, there were few and far between. Um, I feel like uh, Elizabeth May tried to start a few of those moments when, every so often, which she tried to bring the conversation back to Indigenous issues when it got off the rails on that. Picking up from this very fractured discussion on Indigenous issues, but let's face it. Jameet Singh had a few moments of clarity um, even when he was unfortunately, and I say unfortunately for certain reasons, talking about Bill 21 because he specifically was asked about it. Um, I think that was a fairly clear moment, but overall it was... That, that kind of, I mean, we had the whole thing on Bill 21 where, you know, each leader was kind of interrogating each other on Bill 21, and every single leader more or less agreed that, I mean, there was some kind of false dichotomy between Yves-Francois Blanchet saying, you don't support it enough... And then Trudeau pretending as though he's saying he might eventually challenge it someday off in the future if we ever get there is substantially different than the others. But really, everyone's on the exact same page. Everyone was on the exact same page. And one of those pages was they all felt really bad for Jagmeet Singh that he has to deal with racism. And so oh, my God. They went one by one. And like uh, well, Mr. Singh, I just want to start off by uh, uh, congratulating you on the way that you have handled uh, so many issues around race and identity. Uh, as someone who has uh, been the victim of these types of, uh, of racist acts in the past, uh, I certainly believe you have uh, handled it with a lot of class. 
I want to also echo uh, Andrew's comments because I think that Jagmeet... Mr. Singh, you have spoken very eloquently about discrimination and fought against it all your life. I mean, Trudeau literally said he was uh, very eloquent on the matter, which... Yeah, yeah, you tell, you tell a brown person you speak so well, like, that's not the, that's not the vibe you want to give. <laughs> yeah, that was, it, it was so... I actually forgot about that. I think I already blocked it out of my memory. But, like, what a weird moment. Yeah. No, it was it was incredibly strange, and everybody was also trying to you know score points themselves, give themselves pats on the back. Liz May made sure she said white privilege. I mean, it was it was what you would expect from this group of federal leaders, but it was a little disappointing that it even happened. Yeah, but it's almost like frustrating because you know you almost wanted to me to say you know what, fine, fuck it, whatever. I'm just going to challenge the damn law. I don't care. Any-. But he just couldn't. He just doesn't get there. No, he never got there, and it and it was odd that he kind of gave Trudeau that moment to say, I am going to do this thing, and even though you clearly fall into this category of, you know, a religious minority in Quebec, you were not standing up for people the same way I will, the white savior. <laughs> I mean, like, that, that's been his shtick for, for a while now. Um, I guess in the last thing, you know, we had a whole section on the environment, and, and I don't know, I, we just sat on a, a call-in show where people were kind of saying, you know, like, I really care about the environment, but even they felt a bit torn. Like, is it is it odd that there's still no kind of clear winner on, on the environment, or is it just because, you know, the three center, center-left parties are all sort of more or less or pretty close to the same page? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Everybody says, yes, this is, for the, well, except for Maxine Bernier, everybody says, yes, there's a climate emergency. Yes, we have to do something. But nobody has really articulated what it is that they're going to do and how. I mean, yes, Liz May can point to her fully cost platform, but that still doesn't answer the question of how are we going to do this and how are we going to meet and surpass these Paris Accord targets that everybody says is so important that we meet and and pass. Thank you so much. Go get some sleep. Thank God. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software that I use and I love. I'm being very genuine here. You know, I've read these FreshBook ads many times, but honestly, it is still my absolute favorite app when it comes to managing my expenses and my invoices. So why should you use FreshBooks? Well, I can tell you a couple things about why it's so great. You can send really nice looking invoices to people once you finish a job, and you can remind them automatically so you don't have to keep thinking about pestering the person who owes you all that money. A lot of this can be automated. And FreshBooks even tells you when they've looked at the invoice, so they can't pretend like they didn't get it. Your clients can also pay you directly through FreshBooks, which saves you so much headache when it comes to getting checks or e-transfers or whatever. You can also take pictures of receipts and easily organize them, which makes everything so much easier. And if my clients are late, FreshBooks reminds them for me. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. Of course, the debate wasn't the only thing that happened in the last week. I bet you didn't notice that the Northwest Territories had an election this past week. If you're unfamiliar, the NWT is one of two territories with a nonpartisan consensus-based legislature, meaning there is no official parties and everybody kind of works for the greater good. There's a seven-member cabinet and the rest of the legislature sits in opposition to keep them honest. That means all the shenanigans and hootenanny has to happen on a strictly personal basis. 
Premier Bob McLeod decided at the last minute not to seek re-election, and therefore we have no idea who will be Premier. They're going to have to figure it out themselves. Going into this election, there were merely three women in the 19-person legislature. Now there are nine, which is pretty damn near half. I don't pretend to know anything about the local issues, so go listen to Cabin Radio, which covers the North in podcast form. They're great. The sentiment that went around our crew is what a wacky election it was, man. I mean, I think that's undeniable, really. History in the making. My you God. know, nine women elected MLA across the territory, four in Yellowknife alone, uh, and a youth movement again. That was mm. the thing, that was the theme that kept popping up. On the campaign trail, Andrew Shear called for a 25% cut to foreign aid. Our plan will take your hard earned tax dollars away from dictators and relatively wealthy countries and put them back in your pockets. He said he would only cut aid to rich countries. Odd, as Canada generally doesn't give aid to rich countries. His plan would substantially reduce development food and security funding to countries abroad, and it wouldn't even save us that much money. Mesdames, Messieurs, bonsoir, ici Pierre Bruno. Bienvenue au Face à Face 2019. Most of the major party leaders took part in a French language debate on TVA last week. Andrew Scheer got clobbered, Jagmeet Singh did surprisingly well, Yves-Francois Blanchet was super feisty and just a little racist, Justin Trudeau mostly stayed out of it, and Elizabeth May wasn't invited. The debate sparked fervor over Justin Trudeau's second campaign plane, with Andrew Scheer calling him a hypocrite. Look, I don't understand why he needs two planes. Uh, we've got the one. Uh, we have lots of space for luggage and equipment. Which is dumb, because the Liberal Party buys carbon offsets for both of its planes. So his flying around is technically carbon neutral. You know who doesn't do that? Andrew Scheer. The Bloc Québécois leader invited Quebecers to vote for a leader who resembles them. Le 21 octobre, la décision va vous appartenir. Vous pouvez opter pour des femmes et des hommes qui vous ressemblent. Qui... Meanwhile, Jagmeet Singh got accosted by a racist guy in Montreal, but he was an anglophone. So take that stereotypes. You should cut your turban off and you put a you look like a Canadian. Oh, I think Canadians look like all sorts of people. Andrew Scheer, the dual citizen, turns out, which really would not matter at all had he not suggested that former Governor General Mikhail Jean was unfit for the role because of her two passports. I haven't, uh, I haven't been asked a question. So You've been honest about it. You've never told anybody. Well, I've never been asked about it. I've never, I've never hit it. Meanwhile, the Tories fired their candidate in Burnaby South, Heather Leung, after local news outlet Burnaby Now revealed she had said some pretty homophobic things just a few years ago. Her name will still appear on the ballot, although the Tories don't have much of a shot in taking that riding anyway. The Liberals, however, have a very good shot at taking Sydney, Victoria on Cape Breton Island. Their candidate is Jamie Baptiste, a law school grad and an Indigenous educator. Trouble is, he's also said some pretty bad things online. Homophobic, sexist, racist, you name it. The Liberals say they will not be dropping him as a candidate. I guess it's not blackface. And Singh had one of his best moments on the campaign trail this past week. In response to a journalist's question, he justified why making up the gap for infrastructure funding on First Nations to finally address their drinking water crisis is a worthwhile investment. Would you be asking this question if, if Vancouver did not have clean drinking water? Would you be asking this question if Edmonton did not have clean drinking water? No, you wouldn't. And that's what I'm saying. Why is it that we ask the question about whether or not Indigenous people should have clean drinking water? we got to take a minute and think, why is that even a question? Yes, they deserve clean drinking water. And finally this week, just before the debate on Monday night, the Conservative Party sent out a press release to journalists demanding answers around Justin Trudeau's time at the West Point Grey Academy, where he taught in the early 2000s. That's the school where Justin Trudeau decided it would be fun and not super racist to Don Brownface. Well, the rumors have been swirling that Trudeau was fired from the school for doing something improper. The innuendo has been spread by Warren Kinsella, who has been claiming there is some big Globe and Mail investigation coming. Trouble is, it's all bullshit. 
A Globe source in the know tells Oppo there's no investigation. They looked into it. There's nothing there. But the Conservative Party and Warren Kinsell have continued peddling into conspiracy. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by the new book, Highway of Tears. For decades, Indigenous women and girls have gone missing or been found murdered along an isolated stretch of highway in northwestern British Columbia. The highway is known as the Highway of Tears, and it has come to symbolize a national crisis. In this book, journalist Jessica McDermott meticulously investigates the devastating effect these tragedies have had on the families and the victims in those communities, and how systemic racism and indifference has created a climate where Indigenous women and girls are over-policed yet under-protected. Through interviews with those closest to the victims, their mothers and fathers, their siblings, and their friends, McDermott provides an intimate first-hand account of their loss and their unflagging fight for justice. This book is a brilliant window into the historically fraught social and cultural tensions between settlers and indigenous peoples. McDermott manages to contextualize these cases in the broader crisis around missing and murdered indigenous women. The most recent estimates puts that number at 4,000 women and girls. This book is not the product of parachute journalism. The families of the victims were really involved in the process. The author spends a lot of time talking to the people closest to the victims, those that are most affected. And the book takes an intimate, in-depth look at the lives of the missing and murdered women and girls and their families. There's also a lot of new reporting on how the police investigated these cases and in-depth interviews with the investigating officers themselves. This is the sort of thing you're not going to find anywhere else. You need to read this book. Go pick up a copy today. Highway of Tears is available wherever books are sold. This past weekend, I was in Edmonton where I got the chance to catch up with one of my favorite writers and eggheads around all things energy and the environment. Andrew Leach is a professor in the University of Alberta who makes carbon neutrality fun. I wanted to break down exactly how each party is doing on the environment. Andrew, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So what I want to do with you, and, and this is going to be you know, the, the fun like oppo lightning round off the top, I want to run through the major party campaign platforms in terms of energy and the environment. Not exhaustive, but you know, a, a general synopsis. And I want you to give me like your, your honest, immediate, like top of mind reaction to how stupid or realistic or bad or good each of these are. Okay. Okay, so the Liberal platform, very quickly, is committing to net zero emissions by 2050. It wants legally binding milestones. It wants a cabinet of scientists and economists and experts, which actually ostensibly would probably include you. Um, it would create a just transition act for uh, workers in the energy economy, plant two billion trees over the next little while, uh, create a disaster benefit insurance act to help people who have been affected by climate change, um, create a flood insurance program on top of that, clean power fund. 200 million over four years for zero emission technology, 50 million for clean energy vehicles, retrofitting 1.5 million homes, and a $5 billion clean power fund. How does that make you feel? You just listed all those things, and people critique the liberals for not doing enough. And you didn't even mention the things they've already done. Carbon tax, clean fuel standard, coal phase out, four years in government. It's amazing how many things we're talking about, and yet... It's many things, but is it many things that would actually significantly reduce CO2 emissions? Like, would this list get us to our Paris targets? It's going to be close. We're on track. We need 70, 80 megatons worth of new stuff. So the trees get us a long way. I mean, it's sort of an easy thing to point at and say, we shouldn't do this, or it's, it's silly. It's, but that's a major initiative, big carbon sink. Do we the know for stuff? sure how much CO2 trees would take out of the environment? No. Okay, no. It's a big number. Whether or not you're, the liberals are putting forward an overestimate, I can't really say. It's not my thing. Fair. Let's move on to the conservatives. The conservatives would create emission standards. 
of some kind. Uh, they would create a green investment standard certification, which would have some companies report their emission. I, I still don't totally understand what that would do. They would create a green home tax credit, which would give up to 20% a refundable tax credit on the income if you actually put money into green energy improvements of your home, up to 20 grand. A green patent credit, which would reduce uh, just to 5% the uh, income tax on income generated uh, for technology developed and patented in Canada. A $1 billion venture capital green tech fund that would only be about a quarter public money. A $500 million green expansion accelerator. And all of this would be sort of uh, with a uh, with a view to increase energy exports to the rest of the world on green technology. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel like a lot of big government for a conservative <laughs> plan, right? That yeah. we're talking about very complex measures with a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of reporting, and not a lot of detail. So I think the signal is we're doing something, just not that much. Yeah, a lot of this is sort of tax credits and incentives to go do good yep. things. These emission standards that are sort of obliquely referenced in there, um, is that basically a carbon tax? I, I think it's fair enough to say it's, it's an unknown carbon tax, right? right? It could be nothing, or it could be really, really stringent. Yeah. So to me, the, the biggest indicator that it's not going to do a lot is, imagine if Justin Trudeau came out and said, we're going to apply a standard to big companies, large emitters. And if they exceed that standard, we're going to force them to invest in green tech, right? Our premier would lose his mind. What's Jason Kenney's reaction to Andrew Scheer's plan? Crickets, right? Because he doesn't expect it to change their behavior very much. Right. Now, the way Andrew Scheer has phrased it is, you know, I'm going to create basically a price for the big polluters, whereas the liberal plan has exempted the big polluters. I know there's there's some bullshit behind that. But on, on the face of it, that makes me go, oh, OK. But is that actually kind of what it, the plan looks like? Or so how does Justin Trudeau's plan exempt big polluters? It gives them some level of emissions for free and then charges them a price when they go over a limit. Yeah. What does Andrew Scheer's plan do? It gives them a bunch of emissions for free and then forces them to invest when they go over a limit. They're right. basically exactly the same thing if we were to apply the same dollars per ton over the limit and apply the same limits. The thing right. with Andrew Scheer's plan is we, we don't, don't know, know what the, the limits are. are yeah. We don't know what the dollars per ton is. And, and, and famously, you know, Andrew Scheer keeps saying, you know, my plan's going to put money back in your pocket. But but in a scenario where he does create that cap and does force people, to, companies to invest into green technology, the, those costs will still be pushed on to the consumer ostensibly, but there won't be any sort of, uh, you know, rebates. Yeah, some of them. Although, importantly, it's not hitting the combustion emissions. So it's not, presumably, it's not hitting the emissions from when you drive your car. It's hitting the refinery's emissions, but it's harder for those businesses to pass costs through because it's an international market. Okay. So the NDP plan would commit to uh, cross-sector energy retrofits, not just for consumers, but for, for business uh, buildings as well. There'd be federal incentives for green vehicles, and they would commit to carbon-free electricity by 2030. They'd also commit to meeting our Paris targets um, and generally reducing CO2 in the atmosphere. There's not a lot of specifics in the NDP plan. No, so they're committed to a much more stringent 2030 target than Paris. This is we're going to meet, we're going to exceed Paris, and we might even go further than what we're telling you in this plan. We're just not telling you how. Yeah. I think the the one you highlighted at the end, the net zero by 2030 on the electricity front, that's relatively easy for, well, it's easy for Quebec, it's easy for BC, it's easy for Manitoba. Going to Ontario gets a little bit harder. Get into Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, it gets next to impossible. So there's so much more integration that they're not dealing with in those four or five provinces that use fossil fuel power to a great degree. And, and, and given their more aggressive Paris targets, they kind of reference uh, the carbon pricing scheme as a necessary vehicle there. Is, is, is that sort of them sort of winking and saying that they're going to significantly increase the price of, of carbon? 
They don't say. Right. You'd have to do something. They, they don't specify what that means. I think in the, their platform, it's basically we'll continue with carbon pricing. That's right, yeah. Which is sort of like saying we'll have speed limits. And the relevant topic isn't whether or not you have speed limits. It's what's the speed limit set at. Okay, so the green plan. On the political front, I found this pretty interesting. They committed to a cross-party cabinet to build strategy around uh, fighting uh, climate change and reducing CO2 emissions. Uh, they would create legal emissions limits, and there would be penalties if governments don't meet them. There would be no new pipelines, coal, oil, gas, or mining, including offshore. They would commit to 100% electricity from renewables by 2030. There would be a nationwide electric grid strategy that would connect a bunch of different provinces that has been the subject of some of some debate, uh, aggressive energy retrofits. They would change the building code to require new buildings meet net zero emissions by 2030. And finally, they would ban gas-powered cars by 2030 as well. There's other stuff in there. This is not the exhaustive, exhaustive list, but this is, this is pretty aggressive stuff. It's a lot. And, you know, again, it's how much, how fast, and what tools does the federal government have to do these things? And I guess the, the last piece is the regional bit, right? If you say, we're, we're going to basically end bitumen extraction. We're going to end fracking. We're going to convert all electricity to net zero by 2030. And we're going to also electrify just about everything and renovate all of the buildings. Okay, let's think about Alberta for a second. You've basically taken out most of the economic engine of Alberta. And you're demanding everybody retrofit their homes. And you're replacing all of the electricity infrastructure in the province, for all intents and purposes, 85% of it, in 10 years. And none of that is federal jurisdiction. Or but I imagine Jason Kenney will be cool with it. Oh, sure. In a way, what I like about the Green Plan is they know that this is impossible. Well, but it's famously but called Mission Possible. <laughs> it's, but they understand the challenge. Right. I had a chance to talk to Elizabeth May during the, the campaign, and she uses World War metaphors. She's yeah. very, you know... Uh, she knows the challenge that's there. I don't know that she knows every little bit of it or thinks about the regional dimensions as much. She's, we're going to do this. It's going to be hard, but it's necessary. And, and to some degree, she's sort of playing foil, saying, like, you know, here's where I need to be. Here is some general idea that how to get there. You go take those and refine those with all of your policy wonks and make them work. You know, I, yeah. I, I think she was the first to commit or to suggest that Canada ought to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. And, and now, interestingly, the, the liberals have committed to exactly the same target. Exactly. The Green Party is sort of on the other side, which is the solutions must be feasible because the problem is so serious. Yeah. But I don't think they're in the space of thinking this isn't hard. I think the 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 NDP plan, which sets some of the same goals, has this idea of, you know, we'll 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 just fund just transitions, we'll make everything work, everything will be fine, uh, and we don't want to talk about how hard it is. And so I, that to me, that's the difference between the two really aggressive commitments. Is that the Greens have a sense to a degree of how aggressive they're asking people to be. They're just fine with that. Right. I'm not sure the NDP are there. Okay, so overall, looking at looking at the four major parties, I, I, I'm sorry I didn't get to the People's Party's uh, environmental uh, that, platform. That one's easy. <laughs> <laughs> like burn, baby, burn. Yeah, something like that. But looking at the four party platforms, like, is this heartening? You know, I, I actually am somewhat taking heart of the fact that, you know, the conservative plan is just absolute dog shit. But the fact that they're even trying, I almost find heartening. I like the fact that they feel like they can't run on we're not going to act on this. Exactly. But stand their platform up against Harper's platform in 2006 or 2008. It's which, not even Which close. famously wanted carbon pricing. It wanted uh, a cap-and-trade well, model. Car- 2008 around. But. Yeah, but even the, earlier on, 2007, uh, turning the corner plan, aggressive carbon pricing, aggressive regulation, 
you know, this pales by comparison to where the conservatives have been on this issue before. And, and so I think there's there's good and bad here. I think you're seeing some of the sort of worst aspects of, of Harper on this issue of, you know, we can distract, we can tell people that China's the real problem, we can talk about pollution and all of these other things and, and sort of, hey, look over there. Uh, so that bugs me. But I do think the the fact that we have three of the four parties pushing, or three of the four major parties at least, pushing pretty aggressive plans and well-thought-out plans is is a good sign. What's missing? So like looking at you know these four plans, you know, you're somebody who has helped develop climate and energy strategies for the government of Alberta under Rachel Notley, um, for the government of Canada under Justin Trudeau. And I'm sure if Jason Kenney comes calling, which I somehow doubt he will, um, you would help the government. You always take a call, right? <laughs> you always help if you're asked. So, you know, you've, you've helped develop these yeah. plans before. So what's missing here? You know, what have they not thought through? Um, I, I think the... I'm going to answer a slightly different question. Okay. What don't Canadian voters understand about this? And it's, I think it's to the degree how hard it is, right? How regional it is, how local these things are. And I think all of the federal parties have thought a lot about what we want to accomplish at the national level. I think, particularly the NDP and the Greens, I don't think they've thought through how does that translate to local, how does that translate to individual people, communities, et cetera. So if you say, you know, we're not going to do any more fracking, you know, nationally, that's an important policy. But if you're in certain regions of northeastern BC, that is a life-changing policy. Right, that's the cod fishery, and it's just offhanding that during an election campaign, and I don't think we would have ever seen that. And so I think that's where there is still a little bit of a difference on, on some of the parties. On the conservative front, I think they don't appreciate the degree to which this problem isn't going away, and that, you know, to a degree, they're right that people are picking on Canada because Canada's a an easy target. But that's not going to stop because you have a conservative government that has less policies and that cares less about this issue. In fact, it probably gets stronger. One thing I did forget to mention off the top is that the NDP has, has sort of talked about a green infrastructure bank sort of modeled after, you know, what the Trudeau government set up around just general infrastructure. Does that work? I mean, to some degree, is there is there just not enough projects out there? I mean, whether it's Andrew Scheer or, or Jungmeet Singh or whoever, um, to some degree, are they talking about funding things that just aren't on the table right now? The challenge with anything is these aren't banks, right? We're calling yeah. them banks, but they're really not banks. And they're big pots so of cash. What, but what are you left with at the end of the day when a project needs the government's bank to underwrite it? You're left with the projects that weren't interesting to people seeking commercial returns. So you're, you're left with the leftovers. So you're going to end up with the worst projects. And then a politically sensitive operation that's left with only the option to fund the worst projects or fund nothing. And I think that's to a degree what we're seeing on the infrastructure bank. You know, you're left with... Can I fund the things that otherwise aren't going to work? And yet I'm a political entity that has a lot of problems if I fund a bad project. That's a really bad match. Infrastructure, that's not like a one out of ten bet that a bank can't deal with. So when it, when it comes to the liberal plan, you know, I mean, this is this is supposed to be the most credible plan. You know, it, it's one of two parties that has a shot in government. You know, they profess to deeply care about the climate crisis. You know, it's more serious and substantial and thoughtful than the conservative plan. But is it enough? Like, is it taking as seriously the the threat here that it ought to be? I think so. First of all, advantage of incumbency, but also the burden of incumbency. So what do they promise to do? They promise to take Canada from a, a nation not acting on this 
and bring incredible action. So if you took our policies and put them in place across the G20, the G20 would more than meet its Paris goals on average. So we've got policies that are credible. Now, did we commit to a really aggressive target? Yeah, we actually did. So we might have overcommitted, but I think on that metric, the Liberals are have done more than maybe what we could have expected. The grounds also shifted under them, right? They didn't see Doug Ford, Jason Kenney. They've had to go to war to fight the policies that they did bring in, which I don't think they were expecting. But this is what kills me, is that they won that war, right? Like, if you look at the polling, like, generally, they, they, they vanquished Doug Ford. They vanquished Jason Kenney on this. I mean, obviously, you know, in, in regional elections, um, you know, that you know, those, those candidates did quite well. But on the national level, I think Trudeau has, has still a lot of political capital to go forward and say, you know what, I am going to raise the carbon tax. You know, I am going to go forward with with other, you know, mitigation efforts that, that maybe are a little bit less popular. It kind of feels like he's holding back in part because he's afraid of, of, of you know, sort of alienating those voters who, who, who are kind of thinking about Andrew Scheer. Uh, I think that's part of it, right? Being in the middle ground on climate is always going to be difficult. And so, you know, in Alberta, it certainly has never been a popular policy. But I don't know that nationally, you know, yes, Canadians are relatively supportive of action on climate change. But I think when you drill down, you're still seeing Canadians who, if they're offered the choice of do you want this or do you want the government to put windows in your house and fix your furnace, yeah. it's, it's not clear to me at all that they're going to put their hand up and say yes on the carbon price front. I don't think we've tested that yet. I think we're going to test it at the end of October. Talk to me. So talk to me about these 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 home eco renovation tax credits and programs and subsidies sure. and all this because um, you know this has been around since the Harper era. You know this is way before that. I didn't know that. Yes, we um, used to have a program called Energide for Houses oh. that was in under uh, Chrétien Martin, and it was rebranded Eco Energy Retrofits by Harper. Uh, basically the same I program. Didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So we've got years of data on this stuff. How effective is this really? I, I think it's pretty clear that we need to do some sort of uh, ego uh, retrofitting, but every party has some version of this in their platform. It sure. seems like it's now gospel. It, well, it's gospel because they're incredibly popular. But when you actually look at the data, there's a couple things that jump out. Number one, most of the dollars go to people that are doing things they were going to do anyway. Yeah. Rich so, people who have good accountants, well, which is no, always true of tax not, or not middle, in class, this case. middle class. Yeah. No, the biggest thing here is if your furnace breaks – and the oh. government's got a subsidy for a new high-efficiency furnace. Guess what? You're going to buy a new furnace anyway, and the government's now going to give you 2000 bucks. Oh, okay. You're going to put new windows in your house because you need new windows in your house. Now the government's going to pay X percent of those windows. And the person – there's studies along the line of – uh, how many people knew about this program before they decided to do the renos. They're, they're often uh-huh. very small share. The other thing that happens is – you end up, okay, my furnace broke, I'm going to get a new furnace, you're expecting a big bill. Now the government's going to pay for part of that furnace, hey, do you want an air conditioner too? Mm. And guess what? Now you put in some other things that use energy. So actually a lot of the data show that these projects, they show that the energy consumption in the houses didn't actually drop that much. So and the more effective strategy obviously would be to say, you know, we're going to put a, you know, a surplus, you know, a surcharge on these more wasteful home heating, uh, you know, machines, or we're going to put, you know, an air conditioning tax. Or price emissions. Or or just more aggressively price. But we're not going to pay for you to buy stuff for your house anymore. But that that doesn't quite fly politically. Yeah, it it doesn't. And I think, as you say, they're, they become gospel, they become pretty standard fare in policy. And, you know, the, the other piece that I find interesting on these policies all the time is they tend to be adopted by people with lo- by the wealthier share of our population. Right. So if you walked into an NDP convention and said, I've got a policy idea for you, 
we're going to give $2,000 checks almost exclusively to people earning more than $100,000 a year. And we're not going to give anything to poor people or people who don't own their houses. How do you feel about that? I, they would probably Everybody's going to run you out of the room. Yeah. But if you say we're going to pay for solar panels, electric vehicles, right. and, and home retrofits, then it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. But these are generally found to be incredibly regressive policies. Huh. But evidently, we do need to get people's homes into some level of eco-friendliness. Uh, I mean, absolutely. again, like we so, talked about the East Coast still heating their homes on, 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 yeah. on oil. I mean, and you know, so, how do you get people off so, that? So I think oil is a really good example where a government program to say we're going to move you systematically onto a different fuel source, I think that's probably the right spot to be. And the last thing you want to do in particular in, in those types of situations is say, we're just going to make your life more expensive whether you can afford it or not and hope that you change. Yeah. And, you know, we'll use the East Coast as an example, right? It's a good uh, example. And people, it, don't, it, people in the rest of the country yeah. don't realize it's like I grew up with a big drum in my backyard that was full of oil that, that heated our home. And people, Absolutely. A big tr- oil truck showed up, you know, every few months and refilled your, your tank and yeah. you burned oil to heat your home. Yeah. And switching to electricity outright isn't a solu- super duper solution either because everything is powered by coal. And you don't necessarily have the electricity grid, particularly in the rural regions. I think that's the type of area where government policy can make a huge difference. Say, we're going to come into this whole region, we're going to fund the changeover. Everyone's on the same page, everybody's Uh getting shifted. It's not a question of, if you have the money up front to pay for your fancy new bathroom, we'll also pay for your windows. Yeah. Right? It's, we're, we're treating you all like you're in the same boat. You all took for granted this was just how you heat houses. I think that's a, that's a place where you can probably see some role for government coming in. Another thing that seems like you know, gospel these days is the idea of a smart grid. You know, we need to get the country under the smart electrical grid where you know, uh, we, can, we can more manage peak hours and peak demand and, and, and move energy around the country as needed. You know, Elizabeth May talks about this a bunch, but all the parties adhere to it in some way, shape, or form. I've heard the green grid thing repeated for – it's been like a decade now, maybe even yeah. longer – what is is this coming? Is this a real thing, or they've just kind of made it up? Well, I think it is, right, in, in the sense that the grid that we have today is far smarter than the grid that we had yeah. 20 years ago. But there My, is no, quote-unquote, smart grid that we can just buy off the shelf. There, there isn't, and it's changing as fast as any – it's like saying, what is a smartphone? Well, 10 yeah. years ago, a smartphone was very different from what we've got sitting on the table here. So Elizabeth May's plan, I think she makes two separate things. One is – do we have a grid that allows response, demand responsiveness for things like smart appliances, smart vehicles, solar power, et cetera? And then do we have the, the grid, the physical infrastructure, the big inner ties to move power across the country east to west? And that's not necessarily a smart grid thing. It's right. just a do we have the physical wire to move this stuff? And, do and we, we don't no, do it. Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. And so in you know Alberta, for example, if we wanted to supply all of our power from B.C., or Manitoba, we need roughly 10 times the amount of inner tie that we have today. And we need to build that by 2030 at a time when we're also electrifying all of our transport and electrifying all of our home heating. So our load's going to go up and we need more import to, to backstop that load. So the challenge of doing that is, is massive. So realistically, you need that and increase local production in, in, in green energy. You, then You do. And, and I get this on Twitter all the time, right? Don't you know that the sun doesn't shine all the time? Of course I do. The wind doesn't blow all the time. Yeah. And the more you spread out the grid, the more you can average that the wind is always blowing somewhere. Yeah. But you need enough 
wire, so to speak, to move the power from where the wind is blowing to where it's needed. One thing I found really odd about Elizabeth May's uh, you know, position there, and I, I've seen this echoed in kind of different ways by other people, but is that we need better east to west ties, right? We need to make sure that the hydropower from Newfoundland can get you know, through to New Brunswick, can get through, and Quebec power can get through to Ontario, can get through. But you know, the North American grid is the North American grid. There's no ca- necessarily a Canadian grid America. Does it sort of just kind of make sense to say, let's not worry too much about making sure that BC power goes to Alberta. Let's figure out how, you know, BC power can go to Oregon and how, you know, maybe uh, solar panels in Kansas can make it up to Alberta. You know, is there some, some weird nationalism here that's sort of confusing the issue? That's a great question. And it depends on whether you care, you know, you think of climate change as a global problem then the fact that we're producing more green power is what's important, not necessarily does it get used in Alberta or Oregon. And so I I think you're right about that. There's a little bit of nationalism, but all of our emissions targets are all national targets. And so I think there is an element to that as well, that we are going to be held to account for our national emissions. And certainly Quebec, Manitoba, B.C. play a big role in supplying power into, into the states and their emissions are lower than they otherwise would be, we don't get direct credit for that. And so we sort of look like worse overall nationally because of doing that. So there's nationalism, but there's also the global climate negotiations that play in here. Okay, so very quickly, let's try to do another kind of rapid-fire round. Okay, um, how long do I get? I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll do I want like, giant buzzer. I want, like, one word? <laughs> no, answer it. This is, okay. this is in a federal election debate. You can actually give me thoughtful answers. All right. Um, Andrew Scheer keeps saying that the B.C. carbon tax has not worked because emissions have gone up. Is that bullshit? Was Harper a fiscal conservative because he ran deficits? Fair. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um... A lot of people talk a good game about tidal power. Tidal supposedly, you know, the, the future of energy generation on the East Coast hasn't really worked. Are we putting too much stock in tidal? No, I don't think we're putting too much stock in it. I, I think all of these new technologies have a place. Is yeah. tidal power out of the Bay of Fundy going to supply all of New Brunswick and Saskatchewan? Probably not. But do we have a massive resource that we could potentially use in places like Fundy? Absolutely. Okay, here's one of my ideas. I wrote a column for the Global Mail uh, a couple months ago suggesting that we need to have uh, a carbon balance budget plan to make sure that we actually do not put too much CO2 in the atmosphere with any you know, federal budget. Sure. Am I right? Yes. <laughs> and it, we often think about greenhouse gas policies as just the policies that reduce emissions. We need an accounting that says, what are you doing that reduces them, but also what are you doing that might increase them? Right. Nuclear power. Yes? Maybe. Okay. Uh, very different answer than a, than a few years ago. Nuclear, where it's been tried, has gotten really expensive, but it is an emissions-free source of power that runs all the time. And so, yeah, let's make it work. Cool. Okay, beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Andrew Leach is a professor in the University of Alberta. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew underscore Leach. That's Oppo for this week. Let us know what you think. Email us at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter or Facebook at OppoCast. This episode was produced by Laura Howells. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And the theme music was by Nathan Burley. Hey, this is the producer, Laura. It's late. It's after the debate. Justin didn't take the last word this week, so I'm going to give it to Blanchette. And that word is... Tiny biceps. <laughs>